Hi, everybody, and welcome to the OA for Lent. The OA for Lent is a digital Lenten study guide and podcast that we've created based on the hit Netflix show, The OA. We're the creators and your hosts. I'm Keith Anderson. And I'm Martin Malzahn. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the OA episode three, entitled Champion. To see the study guide with episode summary, scripture references, reflection questions, and spiritual practices, and to follow along and let us know what you think, you can visit our website, theoaforlent.com, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, on with the show. All right, so let's get started with a brief summary of episode three. Uh, if you remember, at the end of episode two, the OA has just been imprisoned by Hap, um, but we don't see very much about where she is or who she's with, um, just some voices and some impressions of the darkness. Well, in episode three, we get a bigger picture of where she is and her situation. Um, it takes place in Hap's mind, where we meet Homer, Scott, and Rachel, who are also imprisoned along with the OA, and they're imprisoned just like lab rats, right? They're kept locked away mm. in these clear cages with water flowing beneath um, and the food pellets that are dispensed every day. It reminded <laughs> me of the hamster cage mm -hmm. we had when I was growing up, you know, when like you had the little pellets <laughs> and then they had the little water bottle. And it's like, these are just like lab rats um, uh, yeah. here down in this mind. Um, and we still don't know a lot of things, right? We don't know where what exactly Hap's intentions are. We don't know what happens after the gas comes. What we do learn at the end of the episode, along with uh, all of them there in the mine, is that they discover they have one thing in common, and that's they have all survived NDEs, or near-death experiences. And the mine, to me, is really like a tomb. It's a place of darkness and despair, and as we shockingly discover with August in the bathtub, a place of death. Uh, and the plot episode revolves around their attempt to escape the mine and get away from Hap. And they try, but they fail. And yet in their attempt, they're drawn closer together. So whereas at the beginning of the episode, the OA describes them as the living dead right next to each other but alone, by the end of the episode, they're sharing more about themselves and what they would do if they escaped. And so even in the face of their failure, something redemptive happens along the way. And the rock cavern kind of reminds me, Martin, of the tomb in the Jesus story, right? Following his crucifixion, yeah. his dead body is laid to rest in this small stone cave. Um, and to all accounts, it seems like the end of his story, this place of darkness, despair, and death. But it becomes the surprising place of new birth and life. And so the episode also foregrounds for me one of the constant themes for me that stands out in the in the episodes uh, in the series as a whole and it's this theme of community and family and what constitutes a family so whereas the families of origins in the story all seem to be broken right the bba can't return calls about her dead brother's estate steve doesn't feel like his family's on his side buck's dad calls him michelle alfonso's mother is a drunk uh, and the OA loses her beloved father and is kind of betrayed by his mm -hmm. sister and then struggles with Nancy and Abel, even though they adopt her. Early on in the episode, Steve says, families suck. And the OA responds, <laughs> yeah. She says, but not all of them, though. Not the ones you build out of strange pieces. And they work. They don't mm -hmm. look like they should, but they do. 
And so against this background of these broken families of origin, we see two families in this episode taking shape. The family of the five misfits that are meeting together in the abandoned house with the OA, and this family of these four subjects who are trapped in Hap's mind. And each group in their own way become a family for the other and find hope in one another. Yeah, I agree, Keith. I think that family is a really interesting theme. And as you pointed out, you know, family has been important with, uh, you know, Nina in uh, Russia and uh, then with her aunt and then Prairie as she becomes to be made known in her adoption. And finally, the OA with her captors. These are all different families as well as those families of the five who are listening to the story because they're there. I, one of the things that has struck me on another chord of what you've been talking about uh, in our previous episode is that the OA begins to really talk about kind of an unsanitized faith. Hmm. You know, that is that, you know, there's this way in which, you know, so many times our faith stories and our religious communities are about generally about feeling positive or good or joyful. And those are all good. And I think we aspire to them, but there are places in our life which are dark, um, which are like that uh, that uh, mine underneath uh, the house where people are held captive. And whatever forces hold us captive, you know, we don't always give the time to describe those, but our scriptures certainly give a lot of time to them. You mm-hmm. know, so what are the dark places that uh, that we have uh, that we have in our lives, and what is the way in which talking about these actually begins to shed some light on them? Yeah, one of the things. Um, I like about the OA is that she's really willing to live with the messiness um, and the ambiguity uh, of the different characters, you know, that she, the the people that she engages with and sort of within herself. And so there is kind of this mm-hmm. letting be that she makes possible. And it seems to be that's part of her healing effect on people is that she's not fixing them. She's not curing them per se, but she is healing them and kind of accepting them and kind of seeing within that brokenness and the mess of their lives, you know, the, the goodness, the hope, the, the promise uh, of each of these characters. Well, I, you know, in, in some ways, you know, you don't want to make too much out of her, um, her blindness, but this seems to operate as a metaphor as well as a, you know, a literal um, bodily impairment that um, there's this way in which her other senses are heightened. You know, when she's in this cave, she talks about, like, I can't survive without air Mm. and sunlight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hap says, well, you know, the others have. You know, you'll adapt. And she says, but others aren't blind. And, you know, I begin to really wonder if, you know, the ways in which her her emotionality and her perceptiveness is heightened mm. and, you know, continues to be heightened even after her sight comes back to her is because she pays attention in a way more deeply than it occurs to most of us to do, you know, to sights, to smells, to touch. Yeah. And to taste, uh, which was one of our favorite parts of the episode as, you know, <laughs> yeah. we were kind of comparing yeah. notes when she makes those sandwiches and they, they yeah. dig into those sandwiches after, you know, eating pellets for, 
and and Homer reveals that he's he's been there over a year. So you know we just got yeah. there. The OA just got there, but you know eating a pellet, eating these pellets for over a year, and they eat those sandwiches with such relish and savoring it. And then she's making the soup, which she tries to poison Hap with. And, you know, and so there's this diabolical plan that's kind of afoot. And in the midst of that, she's talking about how it's a soup that her father taught her how to make. Uh, it was hard for her to eat because, right, it reminded her of home. And so this kind of mm -hmm. the savoring of the food, but also like this very com complex relationship with the, the stew that she was making, the reason for which she was making it. Mm -hmm. um, but the acting with those on the sandwiches was, uh, was awesome. Yeah. Well, I, there's that kind of this throwaway line, but I, I found it. This is one of the reasons these characters become so compelling is that after she makes these sandwiches that they haven't had real food in so long, you know, Scott then's like, you know, where's the mayo? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so He's disappointed. You know, he gets a sandwich and he still has something to complain about. And, you know, <laughs> me like, that was one of the things i was like yeah now anyone who works with people recognizes like this is most certainly true <laughs> you know people will people will find something to complain about yeah we should just kind of reveal that uh, as we're recording today uh, we tried to record this morning first thing and skype was down and so we planned to you know <laughs> skype together at eight fifteen, and we couldn't do it and so now it's in the afternoon and we're able to this skype is back up but you know, we were complaining about it and had to realize this is a free service that we're able to use yeah. that amazingly connects us online to each other. And we're yeah. able to record it and create a podcast out of it. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't complain so much. Yeah, well, truly, uh, Louis Say's observation is like everything is wonderful uh, and all we do is complain yes, is most right. certainly true. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. There's a clip from it's a was a Conan O'Brien show. I forget which one he was on, but he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah we have these yeah. amazing computers in our pockets. We fly in these, you know, planes that take us all these places, and all we can do is <laughs> complain about it. So we'll have to put a link to that uh, yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> well, hey, maybe maybe jumping on that one a little bit. I I wonder, Keith, you had been we had made a lot of connection to having just presided at Ash Wednesday services, me at Wagner College and you and your parish mm -hmm. uh, in Ambler, um, to the ways in which this devotional watching of this uh, series linked to our religious commitments. Yeah. Did you see some other um, some other ways in which maybe some of the um, readings that you know we've done within our own services were appearing in uh, within the show as well? Yeah, I... I had been reflecting on the readings for this past Sunday, which was the first Sunday of Lent, which was the temptations of Jesus. He's out in the desert for 40 days, so he's hungry, he's tired, and then Satan comes and tempts him in these three ways, and he has to kind of resist each time in quoting scripture, and finally Satan flees, and you know the angels come to his aid. And I was just thinking about the role of temptation, um, and I didn't preach this Sunday, but the texts were just in my mind about, you know, what are the temptations that we experience, the temptations we face? And oftentimes I think we think of temptation as tempted to do bad things or wrong things, and that's certainly an element of mm -hmm. temptation. But some of the deeper temptations, the temptation to, you know, doubt oneself, to question one's own self, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there, there's something that's that's kind of the, a darker temptation that I think we can give into. And 
and you know, if the mine as a tomb is a metaphor for some of that for us in the season of Lent, I mean, there's a temptation to just give in, right? Um, a temptation mm. to to give up, even in the midst of their failure to escape. And I thought they were sure we're yeah. going to escape because we had to move on with yeah. the story, and now now we're stuck here in the mine. But um, even amidst their failure to escape, they held on to this hopefulness, right? Homer was able to kind of hold out and say, you know, we um, tried and we failed, but we can try again. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I do see, you know, some of this is uh, an afterthought of kind of reading some of Scripture into things, but mm-hmm. I want like some of this deeper devotional practice, at least one that we're hoping to um, unlock a little bit, is to be able to see you know, these stories of faith everywhere. They're just like omnipresent signs and things. Yeah. And so I I definitely saw the way in which, you know, the ways in which families are constituted, um, even substitute families and friends as groups of related folks. I saw the temptations as present, you know, even the temptation to think less of ourselves and the way then in which, you know, when we're challenged, you know, the groups of, uh, you know, the folks imprisoned in that mind are able to come together and form a family. You know, yeah. they they almost uh, unite against Hap, who thinks himself as part of them, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. he, he does he doesn't he he doesn't see himself as you know their you know in prisoner, but mm-hmm. he sees himself as part of an experiment. You know, he has to be the control, but he doesn't understand that. And when they stop talking to him drives him nuts because he doesn't see himself as a bad guy. I had a question for you around that because you're a college chaplain and I, I guess I would, and I hadn't thought of it until now, but I guess I would say college was the first time when I sort of had to go about making a family of my own. You know, you have your family of origin, you know, with all its complexities and ours certainly had our share of those, but then you're off to college and you've you're building entirely new friendships. You're making new connections. You know, I joined a fraternity. There's a sense of brotherhood about that. And so I, I wonder mm-hmm. from your perspective as a chaplain, do you see that play out in your work that people are kind of assembling families, networks of friends and supporters? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly so. And there's two interesting ways in which I would describe that, that, you know, in some ways, you know, folks, of course, are forming families out of their athletic teams, their, you know, Greek life, and, you know, maybe even their roommate. But I think at a deeper level as well, and maybe this is a little bit going back to how we understand what the role of our faith communities um, does as well, Mm. is that at least on the campus I'm at, among our staff members, we're pretty consumed by the ongoing political division in the world Mm. right now. And, Mm. you know, we were just, we read the news a lot. And so assume our students are equally guided and consumed. And when I meet with individual students, you know, the first thing on their mind is romantic relationships, (laughs) (laughs) you know, followed by, you know, kind of uh, ways in which uh, substance abuse and use has found its way into college campus life and then to, you know, vocation, what am I going to do? And so a handful of folks are politically aware of what's going on, but their day to day is really ruled by much you know, more basic needs. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for that. And I wonder if in some ways, like the OA is to speak to that as well, huh. is that yeah. we find, you know, those folks who find themselves in captivity, you know, whatever else was going on in their life beforehand, 
Yeah. Like suddenly the most basic things take on a whole new uh, significance. The physicality, you know, is a big, big theme in which I'm uncovering, you know, in the ways in which, you know, the OA does jumping jacks or <laughs> the uh, that Homer begins to, uh, you know, describe that uh, well-being needs to be, you know, as a, you know, a former jock, a football player, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get people to engage themselves. Um, yeah. So I, I saw that as something that was pretty central. In that regard, it's, you know, it makes sense that the show connects with so many people and you're talking about romantic relationships, you know, or rela- relationships, yep. Yep. Uh, vocation, you know, who am I and what am I meant to do? You had made a comment at a previous podcast that, a lot of times in the church, we're uh, offering answers to questions that people aren't asking, <laughs> and uh, and that would be a case if you, I think this is what people are thinking about or wondering about, and uh, uh, often tends to be something pretty different, but also really rooted in just the everyday. And this is where one of these things where again, I hope one of the things that as we begin to look at media literacy a little bit um, or conscious consumption that you know you. you you don't want to read prescribed answers or prescribed questions onto every account. Um, and, you know, like I, I tend to see, you know, things through the lens of scripture just cause I'm so familiar with the stories, but when mm-hmm. Rachel started singing, right. They talked about her having perfect pitch. Yeah. Um, I saw, I thought, Oh wow. Isn't that interesting? You know, maybe that's Miriam and making music or that's Hannah's song or that's Mary's song, sometimes mm-hmm. known as the Magnificat. And I, I don't want to say that that is what's happening. I think that that's a little bit of a stretch, mm-hmm. but maybe it's not a stretch to say that, you know, folks who are in captivity, that music is liberation or creativity or art or self-expression, you know, mm. finding a way in which to exert something within yourself, but beyond yourself in the face of difficulty. Yeah. I know why the cage bird sings. <laughs> oh, wow. Right. <laughs> Literally. Right. Yes. Right. Mm. Yeah. And she needed the encouragement of the other, you know, prisoners, I think, to, to encourage her to sing. Right. Slowly, she opens up about her story. She was in the church choir. Um, so ding, 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 mm-hmm. church. Uh, but then, mm-hmm. you know, then mm-hmm. goes into the song. And so that was right kind of there within her. But she needed the the others to kind of help draw that out of her. You know, that was a powerful moment, I think, for, for her character you know, within the show. Well, you know, it was interesting to see the way in which their backstories get developed as well. Mm-hmm. And you see... You know, like, you know, they're kind of talking about who they want that letter addressed to. Mm-hmm. They're trying to smuggle out that ring. And, you know, they all had somebody except for Scott, yeah. right? He's yeah. like, I have nobody. You know, like, just just send help. Just anybody, anything, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder, you know, for folks who don't have that type of connection, you know, like what, you know, if there's not a person, what is the thing which we're connected to? Yeah. On, on that, you know, one of our spiritual practices for this episode on the website is to write a note. And so the question is, you know, for these characters, you have a matter of minutes and you have a small, you know, bill that they're writing on that that'll, they want mm-hmm. to be sent in. And it's who do I contact and what would I say? And, you know, all of them are 
are saying this person, that person, and Scott, except for Scott, of course, who's actually probably saying what everybody watching the television show is thinking at the moment. It's like, just contacted the police and the FBI. You can contact everybody else later. But Homer wants to shove in his ring, you know, and it's like this person yeah. and this person, this person, Rachel and all AOA and all yeah. that stuff. Um, but one of the invitations for the spiritual practice for this episode is to write your own note and to consider you know, not exactly put yourselves in, in your in their shoes um, down in the mine, but what would you write and who would you write to? You know, our writing is so ubiquitous, right? Lots of email, lots yeah. of social media. And, you know, in some ways people lament the fact that we don't write notes anymore, which I don't mind because my handwriting was never very good anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> but what would you write? You know, writing a note is, is a different kind of uh, practice, because as opposed to email where I can hit the delete button as many times as I want and write and rewrite, the thing I struggle with with writing notes is I really have to think it through in advance ahead of time because I don't want to like have to mm-hmm. cross it out mm-hmm. or use another card. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what would you mm-hmm. say and who would you say it to? Well, you've connected this writing with, you know, another spiritual practice of, you know, cooking and savoring food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's certainly some almost Zen-like meditative qualities, or certainly we see within, you know, our own um, Christian commitments, you know, the ways in which, you know, the Eucharist becomes central to who we are. I I think, though, oh, interesting to connect both the writing of a note, or maybe more broadly, the telling of a story, and the ways in which those connect with the cooking of meals and the eating of food. We have, you know, we have we have these traditions, you know, of course, we've got, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, but, you know, just our family meals as well. Like, what are the ways in which, you know, those are bound up in, you know, our favorite, you know, kind of memories? We just had uh, celebrated my wife's birthday this weekend. And in our family, in addition to, you know, maybe going out or whatever, we do a family dinner. And whosever birthday it is, you get to pick the menu and then the other adult and the kids help out, you know, to put on that meal for you. And so it was my wife's birthday, so it was my turn to make the meal, you know, which I don't often do a lot of cooking unless it's on a grill. <clears throat> so, and none of these items were, you know, I went through the recipes and I, you know, went to the store, you know, I had my grocery list. I remembered everything, which is amazing and made the meal. And miraculously it was already at the same time, which never happens to me. Wow. And I just thought how great it was to, you know, do that start to finish. I know if like there are people who cook and they're like, yeah, kind of duh, you know, but cooking is just not my thing that much more comfortable really doing digital stuff and computer stuff and podcasting stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was very Mm -hmm. grounding to, you know, go through that process to take the time to do that, to pay attention and think about part of it too, probably wasn't, was just that this wasn't another meal. This was a meal for Jenny on the occasion of her birthday. And so it was imbued with more meaning for me, every, you know, part of the recipe and every step. And it was a great experience for me to, you know, put that meal together with that in mind. Yeah, I wonder if that's one of the things that the OA invites us to do and, you know, spiritual practices invite us to do is to pause and slow down a little bit more to savor those moments. You know, and so you talk about the ways in which preparing the meal because it was Jenny's birthday had more meaning than if it was just a Tuesday, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There, there are these, these ways in which uh, that can happen. And we had that flashback in uh, which reporter shows up in the episode and she wants to give the OA an opportunity to tell her story. Yeah. 
And there's some interesting things with that. But one of the things is, you know, they find themselves eating dinner and then the OA just finds herself saying, oh, this is so good. <laughs> I haven't had this food in so long. Mm. And, you know, it, it gives that, again, that back and forth moment between, you know, a person who can see and is released from captivity yeah. and then, you know, flashing back to being in captivity and, you know, having to survive on, you know, food pellets mm -hmm. rather than real food. It's in it interesting how, you know, a streaming television show, um, so this, you know, kind of cutting edge technology, really, all this streaming TV, streaming music, yep. but a streaming TV show that you can binge watch like this in its own way calls us back to the body. You know, it's very yeah. kind of high tech experience, though we one we're beginning to really almost already take for granted that we can watch a whole series mm -hmm. in a night if we wanted to. Um, calls us back to the body, mm -hmm. which, as we talked about in the last episode with Ash Wednesday, you know, really is a part of the theme of Lent. Well, I'll tell you one of the one of the things this has done too is this. Uh, this makes me much aware of other people's storytelling. So huh. way in which you know the an the analog you know nature of just telling the story of gathering this group of people together, mm. and the analog nature of you know frankly our faith traditions that we're able to. If it was just as simple as describing what has happened and what is happening, some ways it really is. Um, we don't need, you know, a lot of uh, you know bells and whistles to be able to do it. But we're so tempted to think that something other than what we've had or something other than what we have is what we need. Um, and maybe that's part of our maybe that's part of our own captivity. You shared a link with me recently about Andrew Sullivan's post on um, becoming an addict, addicted on to, to the internet, you know, and um, I forget exactly what the title was called, but, you know, it kind of talks mm -hmm. about just being completely consumed by the web and his blogging and, and writing and, and everything. And uh, he said, he had this quote that you shared with me that said, you know, churches think that the answer to distracting is distracting people even more, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah. So we have to compete with the distraction. So we're just going to try to distract you all the more. And it's this vicious mm -hmm. cycle. And, you know, going analog, as you described, have described it, and just telling the story and just describing what has been and what is, is in part, I think, an antidote to some of that. Uh, because mm -hmm. as much as we are distracted, storytelling still really matters. And I see that in preaching yeah. and teaching and uh, writing, that it's the stories, as distracted and as busy as we are, that still connect with us and in the deep places of our hearts. Well, and I guess on that note, the, one of the things that we have heard a lot from is we've heard people share some of their own stories, their own reactions in the writing of this and the, in the making of this uh, project. And I think that's something that we still would like to hear. Yes. So we would love to uh, know what you think about the episode, the conversation that we have here, we've had. Um, you know, are you uh, part of a community or a family that's talking about uh, the OA? Um, you know, please, we'd love to connect with you. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got uh, comments on our website, theoaforlent.com, on our Facebook page and also on Twitter. Uh, or you can do the Google search for the OA for Lent. Uh, and today, at least, it's still the only thing that <laughs> that's right. up. It's still there. <laughs> please send us your comments, your stories. Already, one of my favorite parts of this project, Martin, is that we're getting this feedback from people to, that have said, oh, I already watched this show and I binged watch it and I'm going to watch it again. Or somebody who just said to me this morning, 
Um, I'm dying to know what happens in number, you know, in episode three, but I'm waiting for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so people are using this in all kinds of different ways, which is really cool and exactly, you know, kind of what we had hoped. That's wonderful. Until we, until we podcast again, we will see you online. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you.